Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. I'm going to go from John 18, verse 38. I'm going to read down to chapter 19, verse 16. Now, when you look at your, uh, if you look at your, um, your handout, it's microfiche. And I, I have to explain. There is, um, on the back corners here, our ushers can give those to you, large print. So you say, I can't read that. That's ridiculous. It, it is. I know that. Um, it, believe it or not, this is not an, an enormously long sermon. You go, right. I got proof. What, what's happening is I'm in a section. You know, there's, the different kinds of passages in the scripture have to be handled differently. And right now we're in this narrative. We're, we're now in the narrative of, of the Lord's uh, trials and the crucifixion and all. And so to get the whole finished thought, I, have, I ended up putting in basically next week's daily Bible study. And, and, uh, because I had to work through it to get through the whole account of, of the trial with Pilate. So that's what you have. And so a bunch of that I'm going to go, I'm going to just take you through what is really a very, uh, it, it's hard to hear. I do not get graphic. I, 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 I don't care for that where we go graphic about, it hurts me to think of what they did to Jesus. But even as I just describe the process, it's painful. It's painful to hear. Um, but we put together this, this process of what happened before Pilate. And we want you to see Pilate's heart, what goes on with Pilate. The man, the man is actually the one on trial, Pilate. And he fails the trial. And we'll see why. And we're going to learn a lesson from it and talk about how that applies to us. So our Father, we ask you to open our ears. We want to hear your voice. We want to see Jesus. Open our eyes, Lord. We would see him. We would, we're his disciples. We want to watch. We want to listen. As painful as this is, it's, it's, it's brought to us by the apostles. And we want to hear it. And we want to see it. And we want to learn from it. We want it to do its deep, beautiful work in us. So we pray, oh God, open the word. We bring you tender hearts that will listen and want to obey you and follow you in all that we are. We pray that. I pray for the grace to get out of the way, Lord, and let us see you. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. All right, I'll start at verse uh, 38 of uh, John, and I'll read just straight down. I'm going to go to uh, 16, God willing. Pilate said to him, what is truth? You remember he, the, Jesus has said, everyone who hears... Uh, who is of the truth, hears my voice. And then Pilate comes back with that sour or mocking tone, I would think, and says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews. Now, let me reemphasize, and you'll hear it all the way through here. When it says the Jews like this, it's not talking about the Jewish people at large. That's gotten an awful lot of trouble over history. It is the Jewish leaders. And he said to them, I find not one crime in him, is what he said. So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, hail, king of the Jews, and to give him slaps on the face. 
Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the again, officers, it's the helpers, the assistants, the uperites, saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews, the religious leaders, answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the son of God. And therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium, that's, the, uh, that's that fortress there at the north end of the, of the uh, temple mount, and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. And for this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the religious leaders cried out again, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who opposes himself, uh, pardon me, everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. That means Friday. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, to the religious leaders, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. That's a chilling statement. So when he handed so then he handed them over, and John says, to them. Do you notice that? In other words, to the will of these religious leaders to be crucified. I'm going to uh, put together, all the Gospels bring different pieces of this trial. And I, and I got into this, and I thought, I just have to see the flow. I want to see the whole thing. I want to go through, just let me see the, what happened to him. And so I'll, we're going to see that today. I'm talking today about courage to lead. Because that's what you saw fail just now in Pilate. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. He said so many times. And yet in the end, the Roman governor sentenced an innocent man to death. Why? What was it that changed his mind? No new evidence was produced. Nothing Jesus said created suspicion. In fact, as the trial progressed, Pilate discovered the truth. Jesus was there because the religious leaders were jealous of his influence. He could see for himself that God was with this rabbi from Nazareth. That's why huge crowds were following him everywhere he went. And many believed that he was the promised Messiah. Pilate was a tough, shrewd soldier. The emperor Tiberius would not have assigned him to govern one of the most troubled regions in the empire. Unless he had already proven himself to be a skillful, if brutal, leader. You've got to understand, 
Pilate, you don't put anybody in charge of Israel. Israel, Rome, Rome would have different kinds of provinces. It would have provinces that it would, would allow to rule themselves in effect because they were peaceful. And then he had other, they have other provinces in which the, the, the Roman general basically has to, has to be in charge. And there's a standing army there because this is just a, a problem place. And Israel constantly had a standing army. Uh, it, it's one of their, their hot spots. It's a difficult place. They don't put anybody there. Pilate had been given full control of the province and the army. He held the power of life and death. He could reverse a death sentence issued by the Sanhedrin and all their decisions had to be ratified by him. He appointed the high priests and controlled the temple and its funds. He even kept the high priest's robes and special garments and only released them at certain festivals. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so the, they, would, they would have to come to him and he would give them the robes. That would be the turban, you know, and the breastplate and the shoulder things and the, and the urim and thummim that go in it and all of that, all, all that special robes uh, that, that held such meaning for Israel. He would hand them to them. They would have their, their, their festival and they'd bring it right back and hand it to him and he'd take it in. He, so they, they can't act because those things have power to them. There's a, there's a, you know, when, the, when the high priest wears those things, Israel listens. And by the time of this trial, Pilate had already proven that he was willing to use the power he had been given. He had slaughtered large numbers of Jews and Samaritans. Remember the Samaritans? Now they had, a, they had an uprising up there where they had somebody uh, uh, there on Mount Gerizim they gather and, and he surrounded them and he, he killed them. He killed their leader. Uh, in fact, he had been so brutal that complaints had already been sent to his superiors. Yet that morning when the high priest threatened to accuse him of disloyalty to Rome, his courage collapsed. And in the moment it did, he ceased to be the leader. And fell under their control. He wasn't willing to pay the price, but they were. And by his failure, Pilate teaches us a profound lesson. He shows us that in order to lead in any capacity, we must first decide whether we're willing to stand firm no matter what may come. Do you hear this? There's a deep decision in any leader. You just have to decide, am I going to do this? What, what, where do I cave in? Where, where are the boundaries? You have to think that through. Uh, I've, been, I've been on boards and things like that, and I remember uh, one board. I, every time I would go, I would have to say to myself, I'm willing to lose my position on the board. Uh, I'm not going to be outrageous. I'm not trying to make trouble. I'm not going to be difficult. That's not the point. But I have to be willing to do what I believe is right. And if I, if I end up in trouble for it, so be it. In other words, I'm having to willing to lose this thing in order to do it right. Do you follow this? Right. I'm going to tell you there were occasions when I, I was the odd man out. I've been ridiculed. I've been laughed at. I've been all kinds of stuff on issues. Uh, later on, by the way, thanked for standing. But boy, it hurt. If you're going to really lead, if you're going to lead it as a parent... You're going to lead as a parent, if you're going to lead as a, as a grandparent, if you're going to lead in, in, in your business, if you're going to lead in any areas, you, you have to def decide yourself, how far will I go? Do I believe this enough basically to die for it? Will I stand here? No matter what may come, because if we don't, 
I'm going to go back. He, he shows us that in order to lead in any capacity, we must first decide whether we're willing to stand firm no matter what may come. Because if we don't, those who have made that decision will rule us. One more little story comes to my mind. Um, a, a grandmother told me this. She said uh, she, was ta- she was taking care of some children. And uh, the one child was, uh, was uh, whining a lot. And, and the grandmother said, I do not listen to whining. And the little child said, no, but my mother does. <laughs> this is so human, people. Nine months of age, it's already engaged. You know, just the youngest child. They, everyone knows their boundaries. They test it. They find out what, where's resolve, where is not. Do they, when they, they say that, but do they really mean it? They can, we, we, it's just human. It's the way life is. When Pilate said this, when he, when he said, I find out one crime in him, the religious leaders began to warn him that whether or not Jesus was guilty of a crime, he still needed to be executed because he had become a dangerous influence. They said he, he was stirring up religious fervor all over Israel. Quote, he shakes up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee even to here. When Pilate, Pilate was looking for a way to avoid being personally responsible for sentencing Jesus. If not feeling convicted of his sins, he was at least superstitious. He didn't want whatever power that was on Jesus to be angry at him. So when he heard that Jesus had begun his ministry in the Galilee, that's northern Israel, he saw a chance to transfer this case to the Jewish king, Herod Antipas, who governed that region. Herod was in Jerusalem for Passover, so it was easy enough to send Jesus to him. I want, we're gonna, as we go through this, watch Pilate. He is constantly trying to get out of making this decision. He does not want to make the decision. He's trying to, he wants to release Jesus. He's trying to get out of this. And it, it just becomes this amazing series of events. So first thing he does is, oh, you're from Galilee, huh? Let's send you to Herod Antipas. Let him make the decision. When Jesus arrived, Herod was delighted to see him. Here was the man who did all those miracles, and he hoped he would perform one in front of him. But Jesus did not even speak to Herod. The chief priests and leaders of the Pharisees had come along, and they vehemently accused Jesus to Herod. Undoubtedly offended by Jesus' silence, Herod ordered Jesus to be dressed up in, and the words are, brightly colored clothing. And then he ordered his soldiers ridicule, uh, pardon me, then he and his soldiers ridiculed Jesus by pretending to honor him as king. Apparently, they put on him a scarlet cloak over a purple robe and sent him back to Pilate dressed that way as a joke. The joke was that they were pretending that they really believed that he was the king of the Jews and were honoring him, but Pilate's plan had not worked. Herod had mocked Jesus, but not used his authority to condemn him. Once again, the terrible decision was back in Pilate's court. Let's go back. When Jesus returned, Pilate went out and sat down on his formal judgment seat. It's, it's called a bema. There in every ancient city, uh, whether it was Greek or, or Roman, uh, you have a public square, some sort of place. I think this is out in front of the, uh, out in front of that uh, Antonia Fortress, this this uh, fort, and it'll be a it'll be a stone seat, 
and he'll sit in that, and it allows the people to come and, and uh, see it. You, whenever you go to Greek cities or you travel, you'll, you, know, you, you come and there's the bema. And it's, so it's, it's no question what this is. He sits down in the bema. People can gather now. And uh, as it were, a trial begins. It was located in a place where the public could gather and watch what was, watch. It was called the, the pavement or Gabatha. They actually think they've found sections of that pavement. Um, the Hebrew name may mean hill of the house or ridge and probably deserves the rocky height, uh, pardon me, describes the rocky height where the Antonia fortress was situated. He did that. When he did it, he signaled that he was opening a formal hearing. He began by announcing to the religious leaders and the crowd that had gathered that both he and Herod had examined Jesus and found nothing deserving of death. So he said he would scourge him to satisfy their fury and then let him go. But while he was sitting there on that judgment seat, he received a letter from his wife warning him not to harm Jesus. She had experienced a fearful vision and prayed for his safety and for that just one. You remember this? He's sitting on the bema and he says, I'm going to scourge him. What a, what a thought. What I, I saw in this, and, I, and I, I, read, I read somebody else say it, Pilate actually scourged Jesus uh, in a, it, trying to keep him from being crucified. Uh, I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. Not as a preparation for crucifixion. We often think of this as just the nasty thing they did to him before they crucified him. He's actually going to try to evoke pity. So first of all, he says, I'll scourge him, okay? That way, you know, you're, you're angry at this guy. Now, I'll hurt him for you. And let's, then let's let him go. Oof. While he's sitting on the beam, his wife sends him a note. Remember this? The note says, I have been you know, terribly troubled uh, in a, in, in a, in a uh, dream today. And she says, I, in effect, I pray for you. May nothing happen to you or to this just one. Okay, now, why? So here he is. Ooh, he. And uh, so now he's, he, watch him. He, he's, th yeah, this is a, what do you, what do you call this? And, uh, this making a call at the line of scrimmage? Yeah. She, it, yeah. Audible, calling an audible. That's all right. Here we go. Uh, so she had received a fearful vision and prayed for his safety for that just one. And that's likely what moved him to try again to release Jesus unharmed. As a goodwill gesture, the Roman governor would often release a prisoner at, a, at, at certain religious festivals. And Pilate thought he might be able to appeal to the crowd and that they would overrule the religious leaders. And by now he had recognized that the religious leaders hated Jesus because they envied his influence with the people. So he thought the crowd might demand Jesus' release. Can you see where he's going? He's, this, is the, this Jesus of Nazareth has had just tens of thousands of people following him and hanging on his every word, lying in the street, shouting out for him. So he thinks, I, he's, he identifies these leaders, these religious leaders, particularly the high priests and a few of, the, I think, the, the top Pharisees, they hate his guts. They're jealous of him, and that's really the issue. And he, so he says, they hate him, but the people I don't think do. And he says, so what I'm going to do is go out and say, who would you like me to release? And then he was hoping that people would go, Jesus, Jesus, release Jesus. And he would overrule those leaders. You see where he's going? So he thought the crowd might demand Jesus' release. He said, it is a custom that we Romans do uh, for you that I should release one prisoner at the Passover. 
Therefore, do you wish that I release for you the king of the Jews? He uses the title for the Messiah. But his plan didn't work. The chief priests and other members of the Sanhedrin quickly mixed into the crowd and persuaded them to ask for someone else to be released. The prisoner they convinced them to ask for had been part of an armed rebellion in Jerusalem and had committed murder in the process. John uses the word to, a word to describe him that means he lived like a pirate. In other words, this man is constantly robbing and, and thieving travelers and everything else. He has a group of, of, of insurrectionists, uh, people who are trying to get rid of the Romans. Uh, he's murdered people uh, in the process. He was well known and held in high regard by those who were looking for someone to lead a rebellion against the Romans. You know, we've captured some of these terrorist leaders and, and put them in prison. Um, and this is what you've got. You've got a terrorist leader, and he's in prison. And we have, on occasion, released some of these, you know, out of, out of a goodwill gesture kind of thing, and ended up meeting him again on the, on the battlefield, that kind of thing. Well, this is what's going on. They go back through the crowd, and they said, you don't want Jesus. He's not, he's not going to do anything. You want Barabbas. You want Barabbas. He, he's, he's a man of action. He will lead us. In our, he will lead us against the Romans. This is who you want. And so the idea, they're asking for this, in effect, terrorist leader to be re-released. And the priests knew that the people had hoped that Jesus would become such a leader. Which is why they went through the crowd encouraging them to ask for someone who had led a rebellion and who might again, if set free. The man's name was Barabbas, son of Abbas. And by the time Pilate asked, which of the two do you want me to release to you? The priests had already swayed the crowd's opinion and they chose Barabbas. Still trying to find a way to release Jesus, Pilate replied, well then what shall I do to Jesus, the one called Messiah? And the crowd, which by then had swollen to a multitude. So now you've got a whole lot of people who don't even know what's going on. With the religious leaders guiding the chant, cried out, let him be crucified. Even then, Pilate tried to reason with them, asking, why? What evil did he do? Luke tells us he actually did that three times, people. And then to try to calm their growing fury, he suggested a compromise. He comes back to this. He would have Jesus scourged and then let him go. Surely that horrible torture would be enough to satisfy their anger. So he released Barabbas and sent Jesus back into the praetorium. John says the soldiers, inspired by the regal robes Herod had put on Jesus, decided to mock him after scourging. So they scourged him and then they got the joke. And they wove a wreath of thorns and placed it on his head like a crown. And threw the purple garment back on him. And then soldier after soldier came up and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him on the face and head. Uh, one of the gospels actually says they'd put a little uh, stick in his hand like, a, like, his, like his kingly staff. And they would pick that up and they'd hit him with it. And then one after another just beat him and beat him and beat him. By the time they were done, he was physically devastated. And Pilate hoped his appearance would cause the crowd to change their minds. Maybe they would feel pity when they saw him in that condition. So he brought Jesus back out and paraded him in front of what by now had turned into a mob. He said, behold, I bring him out to you so that you may know that I find not one crime in him. 
And then he said, behold the man. Isn't that a horrible moment? Meaning, look at him. Isn't that enough punishment? And then John specifically tells us that it was the chief priests and their assistants who, who once again began shouting, crucify, crucify. Growing desperate, Pilate responded, you take him and crucify him. Their reply terrified him even more. They said, Jesus deserved to die because he had claimed to be God's divine son. And that was true. He had. Deeply shaken, Pilate took Jesus back into the praetorium and asked, from what place are you? But Jesus wouldn't answer. Pilate tried to threaten him to make him answer. He said, you don't speak to me. Don't you know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replied, you have not one bit of authority over me, except that it was given to you from above. For this reason, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. He was informing Pilate that even though he was the Roman governor, he could only do what God permitted him to do. He was playing a horrible part in something greater than he understood. The real guilt belonged to Caiaphas and those assisting him. They knowingly were determined to murder the Messiah out of envy. I'm not going to take you there, but see the Matthew 12 passage I referenced? Uh, that is a parable. Well, I guess I'm going to tell it to you a little bit. That's a parable that Jesus told. And he was explaining why these religious leaders were attacking him and hated him the way they did. You remember the parable? It's the parable of a vineyard. Man owned a vineyard. And he rented it out to other, other uh, vineyard operators. And then he sent his servants to collect his portion of, 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 his, uh, of, of the fruit of the vineyard. And when the, the, those people got there, the vineyard workers would beat up his people and throw them out. So finally, it says, the vineyard owner said, I know, I'll send my son. Surely they will respect my son. Notice the difference. There's workers and then there's the son. All right, so he sends his son, and it says the vineyard owners saw the son coming, and they said, this is the son. Let's kill him, and the vineyard will be ours. And then it says, and the religious leaders, Jesus said that in front of the religious leaders, and he said he, they knew he spoke that of them, and they planned on killing him. Pilate's sin in, in this situation was far less. It was only cowardice. After hearing Jesus' words, Pilate's fear grew even stronger. And John says, in spite of all the pressure that had been placed on him, Pilate sought to release him. We're not told what he did, but the religious leaders saw his plan, and then they used their most potent political weapon, against, most potent weapon against him. I'm not sure that he didn't. He had him inside. You know, and at, at this point, I think he took him to the other side of <laughs> If I were him, I would take him across the, 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 the uh, fortress and let him out the other side, you know. <laughs> and I, I thought, whatever it is, he tried to let him go, and they caught it. And then they really, now they pull out the, the club. And they said, if you release this man, you are not a friend of Caesar. Everyone making himself a king speaks against Caesar. 
They meant if he didn't execute Jesus, they would send representatives to Rome to report to Caesar that he was allowing political revolutionaries to rise up because he was no longer loyal to him. They meant that they would work to see that he lost his position as governor and possibly be executed for treason. I'm going to tell you maybe later what actually happened to Pilate. When Pilate heard that, he sat down. Their threat shocked him. He realized that he was now the one who was on trial. Yet amazingly, he tried again. Speaking directly to the religious leaders, he said, Behold your king! They roared back, Take him away! Take him away! Crucify him! And with that, with what must have been the anguish cry of a man being forced to do something he dreaded, Pilate begged one last time, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest replied shamefully. They said something that was totally blasphemous. On behalf of a nation whose only king is God himself, they announced, We have no king except Caesar. And when, they, when he heard the, those words, Pilate knew there was nothing they wouldn't do to see that Jesus was crucified. So he gave up. He made the official pronouncement and sentenced Jesus to death. He knew they were going for broke. They had made the decision. They were going to the wall. They were fully committed. See, when he first got there as the governor, uh, he ordered his men to, to, to uh, raise up their Roman standards, which have these various symbols all on them. And, and, and uh, of course, these religious leaders were just outraged that he would bring these idols into their great city and all of this kind of thing. And so there was a riot and all this kind of trouble, and he killed a whole bunch of them. <laughs> That's how Pilate handled it. And so for them to say, we have no king but Caesar, is just outrageous. He knows it. They know it. They're going for broke. Okay, a battle of wills. Pilate lost control of that situation because he was unwilling to pay the price to do the right thing. He wanted to release Jesus or at least shift the blame to someone else. Matthew tells us that before handing Jesus over to be crucified, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Pilate's frightened. He knew he had failed to defend a good man. And he felt ashamed. He wasn't willing to die for what he knew was right. When we get right down to a person's underlying motivation, it's the depth of that person's commitment to something that is tested when there's a clash of wills. Which, which one wants something so much that they are willing to lose everything to gain it? In the long run, that person or group will win the battle. Don't they often say that at, like at the level of, 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 of like the Super Bowl, you have two excellent teams, two well-coached teams, two teams with some of the best athletes in the country uh, playing. The, the, the decision will really be made by which team what? Wants it more. Look, from a, the smallest child to anyone else, to, a, to an athlete, it begins to be in here, the heart. How much do you want it? Are you willing to go for it? Are you willing to stand for it and, and do whatever is necessary or not? That's what's being tested in this. 
I realize that this is a very unpleasant principle uh, to state so bluntly. But it helps explain how selfish people often end up in control. But it also helps explain why heroic things are done and great obstacles overcome when, selfless, when the selfless decide to do what's right regardless of the price. The fact that selfish people use this principle to get their own way is not a reason for selfless people not to use it. And it actually explains why it's so important for the right people to be willing to lead. If they don't, the wrong people will. Does this make sense? Life is primal. Ultimately, governments are primal. Uh, politics is primal. Uh, there's just a basic struggle of wills. The question is, why are you strong? Are you strong because you're selfish? You're going after something? You're demanding it? You're, 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 you, know, you, you just want it? Or are you going after something because you believe God's asked you to do it? Because it's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's good. It's the right thing to do. What is it that you would, what would you be willing to die for? What is the principle? A good leader. It isn't knowing what's right that makes a person a good leader. It's the decision to pursue what's right, hold to what's right, even fight for what's right that makes a person a good leader. Good leadership, when all is said and done, is moral leadership. The person who makes decisions based on standards above themselves, who does what's right, even when that brings them hardship, because the actual leader in, uh, pardon me, becomes the actual leader in most situations. You will have, you will have family scenarios where, the, 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 in this case, uh, maybe a father who's supposed to be a leader, who's supposed to be the moral leader of the family. Uh, God would put that responsibility on him and call him to do that. First in prayer, first in faith, first in compassion, first in mercy. That, that's what the father's role is. But the father, in this case, maybe is, 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 uh, is immature, he's self-indulgent, he uses his authority arbitrarily, it's all about him, uh, you know, etc. Well, people are afraid of him, people have to morph around his behavior uh, and adapt to it to survive. But over here, maybe we have a mother or a grandmother, and that person does what's what they know to be in the Word of God. That person makes decisions based on what's right, and and quietly just pays the price for it, whatever is necessary. The whole family will ultimately recognize who the moral authority is in that family. And very often, the, the, the whole thing will quietly, they, they have to adapt and deal with this person over here. But they will listen to, and when they need to open their hearts, and when they need to seek for real guidance, they come over here. You follow this? The world recognizes moral authority. Everybody does. We recognize why you do, why I do what we do. They, they, we, they sense that. We read each other. And there are those. And, and you, can have, you can have situations, in fact, I see it quite often now, where one of the children actually becomes the moral authority in the family. And that's the one to whom, you, you know, older people and everybody come to the child. Because the child now has a basis outside of herself or himself. You follow? She's following something higher, following something better, making decisions based on what's right, not on what I want. Moral authority. It's, it's, 
Now, now, every one of us, brothers and sisters, you and I are all meant to be, have that authority. Look at this. Where do we begin? Where do we begin? The first decision Jesus demands of anyone who wishes to be his disciple actually turns that person into a good leader. Would you read this with me? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes to loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Look at that. That's the very first decision. When you and I come to Jesus Christ, the very first decision is will I die for him? Will I give up my life? Will I give up my desires? Will I give up my ambitions? And maybe even physically die as as necessary. Will I make that step? It's very radical, isn't it? So far different from just, oh, Jesus, come into my heart. It's, It's Jesus says, you want to follow me? Then pick up your cross. And we're reading what crosses mean. We're right in the middle of it. They all, vivid, horrible instrument of death. So he says, you want to follow me? Pick up your cross. And here we go. Daily. Choose to put me first. Choose to put God's will first. Choose to put the word of God first. Choose to follow. You surrender and you become his. So every one of us, brothers and sisters, by the very nature of our call, is established in moral leadership. When you say yes to that, you all of a sudden have an entire different basis of who you are, how you make decisions, how you guide your life. I've said it many times at water baptisms. This is what thrills me when I watch men and women uh, really surrender themselves in water baptism. I make it really clear there. Is their whole future is different. Because now they make decisions based not on what they want, what they think, what they read, you know, this kind of stuff in, 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 the, in the world. They make decisions based on what God is talking to them about. Oh, they obey him. And so their entire future changes. It is a different future because this has changed you and I've been every one of us this isn't for for some this is you this is me he said you want to follow me pick up your cross and follow me I uh, this was this week I admit Um, years ago I was 43 (laughs) that was four or five years ago so I've got to be honest with you um it's where it starts. I was going through a lot of depression, uh, a lot of sadness. I was struggling so much. And I was, uh, uh, you know my story. I'll just tell it in brief. I was, I was actually in, in my room. I was in a full depression. The blinds closed, the whole nine yards. Fetal position on the bed. I'm in agony. And the Lord speaks to me. And he says, you don't want to live anymore, do you, son? I said, no, sir, I don't. Now, I wasn't suicidal, I'd already resolved myself, I have to live. You know, I got family, I got to keep living, but I hated. I mean, it was miserable. It's just every day is just survive. And uh, he said, you don't want to live anymore, do you? And I said, no, I don't. He said, well, you know, there's still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of life left here in you. In other words, these, you know, it's like you got another 10,000 miles on these tires. It's that kind of thing. He said, so since you're not enjoying living for yourself. Now, he said that. I was planning a church but he knew my motive. He knew the selfishness. He knew the ambition. He knew this, that, this, that I was grabbing the steering wheel and hanging on. You understand? And he said, since you're not enjoying living for yourself, why don't you give me what's left of your life? 
and I'll spend it any way I want. And I hurt so bad, I said yes and meant it. That broke the depression right then. I, not like I never have anxiety or some other stuff, but I'm telling you, I've never had that again since I was 43. Now, to, to, yeah, down to this week. So I was having a conversation with the Lord. And, and uh, I, was, I was feeling tired. And the Lord said to me, so when you gave me your life, did you just give me um, 30 years of it? Or did you give me all of it? He said, uh, are, you, are, you, are you taking it back now or am I in control? I said, no, you're in control. I gave you all and I meant it. I said, okay, just checking. <laughs> then, then, then you just let go of the wheel. I'll drive. Something lovely happens when that happens. It frees you from a lot. And it's also the foundation of our lives. Something about Christians, if you look at them, their eyes are tender. There's a vulnerable, almost a, almost a childlike vulnerability in a, in a real Christian. But when push comes to shove, they'll stand and go to the wall. They're the ones that don't fold. It's, it's a, it's a, they're strong as steel and soft and tender. It's a very strange combination. But our strength comes down to this decision. We've taken up our cross and we're following him. We'll live for him and we'll die for him. And out of that comes our authority and our strength. Choosing Jesus means to, choosing to be willing to die for him. It means putting his will above ours. Living by his standards, not our own. Making decisions not based on our own self-interests, but on what we believe he is leading us to do. That first decision gives every person who sincerely makes it a moral authority. And in time, it will cause many people to look to that person for guidance. Why? Not because he or she is smarter than everyone else, but because that heart is seeking to do what's right and has the courage to do what's necessary. I told you I, I would tell you what happened to Pilate. Do you want to know? Well, you saw he folded. He, he wasn't willing to lose his position. I mean, he really was possibly vulnerable. They would report him. Uh, who, who knew what might happen to him? And so he folded and he allowed Jesus to be crucified. Uh, ironically, very shortly after that, uh, the Samaritan people, I mentioned how they, he slaughtered a bunch of them. They sent a delegate to the Syrian provincial governor who was Pilate's boss. And they said, he's a brute. He's done this to us and, and all of this. The Syrian provincial governor, I think his name was Vitellius or something like that. He, uh, he took it seriously and he ordered Pilate to report to Tiberius, the emperor, and answer for these charges against him. On the way to Rome, Tiberius died. Well, I mean, well... Uh, well, Pilate was on his way. So when he got there, Gaius became the emperor. And I don't know the, what happened. It's a little mysterious. But somewhere in the next few years, Pilate was ordered by the Roman governor, 
government to commit suicide. The very thing he feared, the very thing he traded off his, his integrity for, came upon him. You know, you just want to ask the question, don't you? We don't know what would happen. What if he had, in fact, defended Jesus right to the wall? What if he said, go ahead, report me. I'm going to do what's right. It would have been different, whatever it is. The Lord's our Lord. We're in good hands when we follow him. He's a faithful Lord to us. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.